Good morning, Seven Mile Road. It's good to, to stand before you this morning. Uh, for those of you that I don't know, I'm Justin Gautlieb. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, normally, I get to lead you in worship as we respond to the gospel in song after the sermon and after the Lord's Supper. But today, it's my joy to get to lead you in worship uh, from the pulpit. Uh, I love getting to sing of God's grace with you on a regular basis. Uh, but today, it's a particular joy to me. Because today, I get to open the scriptures with you as we learn of God's intentions for our gathered worship each Sunday. Today, we're going to get to see that our gathering each week isn't only about us in here, or us as individuals, but that it's about the kingdom of God advancing in our day and time. We're going to see, by God's grace, that this hour and a half that we get together at 10 a.m. each Sunday is crucial, not only for us that gather, but to those around us who don't yet believe the gospel of Christ Jesus. Before we get started, though, I'll ask that you'll join me in prayer, and then we'll get, we'll get going. Jesus, I pray today that as we open your word, and that as we're gathered as a people around it, that your gospel would be really clear. Lord, I pray for eyes to see for all of us. I pray that we would see the glory of the gospel and that we would, we would savor it. I pray that our hearts would have affections raised for you. And I pray that we'll also get to see the immense grace that it is that we would get to gather in worship together each week. Uh, that's a special thing you've done for us, and I beg that we wouldn't take it lightly. So use today towards that end. And I pray that we would also see that this immense grace of gathered worship isn't only for us, but it's for those around us, those that we'll interact with the other 166 hours of this week. Uh, so I pray you would be good to us now, that you would protect us from the evil one, you would protect us from error, and that you would cause us to hope in Jesus. Amen. All right, over these last few months, We've been learning that God not only saves us, but that he also sends us. We've learned from the scriptures about mission at home, mission in our neighborhoods. We've learned about mission at work, and, and we've talked about mission across the globe. Uh, we've talked a ton about mission, and we've talked a ton about God's intention for this world, his intentions for our lives. And there has been fruit. Uh, we should be encouraged. Many of us are finding ourselves thinking about mission in ways that we haven't before. Uh, even more, some of us are beginning to think of mission as more than mission. And what I mean by that is that we're beginning to think of mission as life. We're seeing proclamation of the gospel in word and deed as what we've been made for. We're coming to see that by God's grace. And I know this because during this series, I've heard story after story of gospel proclamation happening with our friends, with coworkers, with clients, and even with strangers. It's been a joy to hear that. And I'm hoping that you find today encouraging and helpful towards that end as well. 
See, this will be the last sermon in our series on mission, our series we called Always Being Sent. Uh, This is going to be the last sermon of it. And we're going to be ending this series by looking at how corporate worship, gathered worship, Lord's Day worship, basically what we're doing right now, uh, we're going to be we're going to be looking at how the gathering of the saints each Sunday to worship Jesus advances the mission of God. See, it's God who has given us this weekly rhythm of gathering with the saints, sitting under the preached word, feasting at his table, worshiping in song, praying together and fellowshipping together. As we gather on Sunday mornings, our time is not merely something that happens at 10 a.m. and fades by noon. Our time is about seeing God, hearing from God, and being built up in the gospel so that we can be sent from here, so that we can be scattered into a world desperately needing to hear of his grace, a world that's desperately needing redemption, and a world desperately needing Jesus. So one of the reasons that this rhythm of grace is so necessary is because of the time and place that we live in. And I don't necessarily mean Boston in 2013. I mean that we live between promise and peril. Uh, See, God has made these huge promises to save us, to redeem this world, and to provide salvation to his people, his covenant people. And part of that is him providing an eternity, worshiping him in the new heavens and the new earth. So there's this glorious future that we hope in and look forward to. Yet, we're hoping and longing in something that is not our now. See, our now is peril. Our now is daily life, daily existence, daily exposure to the sinful and depraved and broke down world. Our daily life involves interaction with the sin of others. It involves uh, interaction with the sin of of ourselves. And so our best days, if we're honest, try to break us down. Our best days are still not holy, are still not gospel-centered, and and they're still not non-destructive. See, even the best things in this life that this world can offer us are still working towards our destruction. Yet, you and I are still God's plan A for the advancement of the kingdom, for the advancement of the gospel, and for the calling out of the elect in our day and time. And whether we feel up to the task or not, this is what we're called for. This is what we were made for. See, we've been made to show off and proclaim the endless glories and the supremacy of Christ above all things. And that's what we've been saved into. And that is the task before us. So there's this confrontation before us that revolves around this. Uh, You could say it like this. In living between promise and peril, and all the dimensions that that takes on, either worldly or personally or corporately, how do I live out my God-given missional identity? How does this sinner overcome the peril of this place to be used by God to advance the gospel? That's a big question, uh, a weighty question. Today I'll be arguing that there is a God-given stake in the ground that is to aid us in that task. 
uh, that there is a, a God-given stake in the ground to make sure that we are believing the gospel and working to advance the mission. And I'm going to argue that gathered worship in the local church is that gracious stake in the ground. And that, because of that, it surpasses all of our expectations of it. So far more than being a recurring event in Google Calendar, and far more than being something that we do to feel good about ourselves, gathering for worship with the saints is about advancing the mission of God. God has designed our week. He's designed our community, this very community, and designed our worship of Him so that when we gather for worship each Sunday, His mission is being advanced. And today we're going to talk about three things that happen as we gather for worship each week that all work towards that mission advancing. I'm going to tell you what they are now and then we're going to work through through a text and see them. First, Each week, when we gather for worship, we experience the gospel firsthand. Second, each week when we gather for worship, we confess Christ. How sweet that is that we get to do that. And third, each week when we gather for worship, we are stirring up our brothers and sisters to love and good works. We're going to be working through Hebrews 10, 19 through 25. So if you've got your Bibles, uh, open up to that, that point. And I'm going to read through this, and we'll get to work in it. It's Hebrews 10, verses 19 through 25. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of hope without wavering, For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. Alright, the first of the three things that I mentioned that happen when we gather for worship is that we experience the gospel. See, we don't just come here to learn about the gospel. We live it and experience it every single week when we gather to worship Jesus. See, there's a certain drama to to gathering to worship the triune God with the saints. So while this room shares a ton of similarities, like walls and chairs and speakers and a screen, with other rooms that people gather in throughout the week for different purposes, there's something different that goes on here. And and there's a different gravity about it because of that. See, when we gather and the Lord of glory descends on this place by His Spirit, 
We ought to be trembling with fear. By the way, do you realize what a miracle it is that we can say that? That the actual Lord of the universe, the Lord of glory, descends upon this place to meet with us this morning. This shocking truth. See, we ought to be trembling with fear because he knows who we are and he knows what we have done. And none of what we have done ought to result in the Spirit of God coming to meet with us. Nothing that we have done should result in us getting to delight in the presence of God. See, there should be nothing calm, cool, or collected about gathering with the church to worship. There shouldn't. And as you can hear it in the text, and as you could hear it in the text that Pastor Dan read earlier, the author of Hebrews doesn't feel like there is uh, any lightheartedness or calmness to this experience. See, he knows his Bible and he knows humanity. So he knows that we don't have any business coming before God because of our sin. Just no business at all. And as a result, the, the first three verses of today's passage end up talking about the work of Jesus. See, before the author can, can dare encourage you or exhort you or command you to draw near to God, he first needs to convince us, he, needs, he first needs to convince me that it won't be the last thing that I do. See, he knows that not only do we not deserve getting any pleasure from God, but that we actually deserve death. See, it's a miracle that we could draw near to God. And we can't and we shouldn't miss what happens to make that available to us. Let me read verses 19 through 21. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God. And then he goes on. So as you heard in the first scripture that we read today, that Pastor Dan read, when God dwelled among his people in the Old Testament in either the tabernacle or the temple, the people of God could not come before them. Only the high priest, a, a representative of the people who was consecrated and, and made ceremonially clean, could enter into the sanctuary with God. There was a veil and only he could get past that. And he could only do so at certain times and under certain conditions. See, sin is what makes coming before God and not experiencing judgment an impossibility for humanity. Coming before God is actually the most terrifying thing sinful man could imagine if he, if he isn't so arrogant to think himself worthy of the privilege. With Christ, however, things have changed. And the author of Hebrews wants us to know that, wants us to get that. See, rather than standing on the outside of the curtain longing to get a peek at the infinitely beautiful creator of the universe. Those in Jesus are now invited into the holiest of places. What wasn't ours now is. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. Did you hear that? Despite our sin, despite our griminess, despite our rebellion against God, we are not only welcome, we should have confidence to enter the holy places because of the blood of Jesus. This isn't an invitation to a party that you don't know if you're really welcome at. All right? 
You have an invitation, the perfect clothes, and a seat at the best table because of Jesus. Our confident entrance into the holy places now and eternally is because of Jesus' blood. And, And in this passage, he continues on in verse 20, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is his flesh. See, Jesus was beaten, broken, and torn and put to death to make a new and living way for us. A way through the curtain. See, torn at the cry of his death, never to be sewn up again, that cur- the curtain that only the priest could pass through is now open for us. You and I who have and continue to rebel against the king have free access to his throne of grace and the riches of his mercy because of Jesus. And that is how we experience the gospel when we gather each week for worship. See, God is present here, and we've got no business in his presence except that the blood of Jesus has made way through the veil. And more than just letting us know that we have access to God, the author of Hebrews is concerned that we actually take hold of that access and draw near to God in full assurance that the gospel is true and that it is for us. See, earlier in the book he wrote, this is Hebrews 4.16, he wrote, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. See, when we gather for corporate worship, we're believing that God is here And that we should not be allowed in his presence unless the gospel is true. If it is true, then everything changes. This is why we start our liturgy each Sunday with the confession of sin and a pronouncement of forgiveness of our sins. You guys notice we do that every week? That's why. It's because we're experiencing the gospel each Sunday in worship as we take hold of the privilege of being God's own. As we take hold of the privilege of getting to enter into the holy places and draw near to God with full assurance, with confidence. See, we're invited into God's presence to delight in Him because of the blood of Jesus. The King we rebelled against has has atoned for our transgression that we might enter the castle and be adopted and live forever as his own sons. Praise him. We get a taste of this as we gather for worship each week, each Sunday, as we hear his word, as we eat at his table, and sing of his grace. This ought to do something in our souls that then drives us to mission. See, experiencing the gospel should be driving us to proclaim the gospel. It's that beautiful. Each week as we gather for worship, we're experiencing the gospel in deep and tangible ways. God's presence is real. So is our sin. Yet we live, and yet we are treated as sons. The second thing that this text tells us happens when we gather for corporate worship is that we confess Christ. 
See, the scriptures here command it. Verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. It's no secret to you that we confess Christ together when we gather each week. After all, um, on any particular Sunday at Seven Mile Road, we confess sin, we confess the gospel to be true. And, and we do this as we sit under gospel-centered preaching. We confess the gospel to be true as we take communion together. And we confess the gospel to be true as we sing songs responding to God's grace later on. Taking all of this together, you are not likely surprised to hear that we confess together of Christ as we worship. You just aren't going to be surprised with that. What's interesting about this verse, though, is, is not that we aren't supposed to waver in confessing Christ. You would get that. Like, we would expect that. What's interesting of this verse is the reasoning that the author of Hebrews gives us for why we will be confessing Christ. And what he says is um, that, that our not wavering in our confession of Christ is not a result of us. Instead, Hebrews tells us that we hold fast the confession of our hope to the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who has promised is faithful. Because he who promised is faithful. So, so the reason that we're holding fast to the confession of Christ, which we do together, isn't about any of us being strong. It's about the body of Christ hoping in, not ourselves, or our collective wisdom or strength, but hoping in the one who is faithful. See, when we gather for worship, we are confessing our hope in God by trusting that Christ has made this new and living way for us to enter into the presence of God. And then by drawing near to God. And all of this centers around holding fast to Christ's sacrificial work on our behalf. Our confidence before God revolves around the objective work that Jesus did on the cross and its sufficiency now and on the day of his return. Our confession is that God is faithful and that what he has said of Christ is true. See, we're, we're hoping and, and confessing that the promise of Christ as our perfect sacrifice is true. That the the promise of Christ as our great high priest is true. And at the end, we're, we're hoping that it's all true. We're confessing that it's true. Not because we've seen it with our own eyes, but because God is faithful and he keeps his promises. See, we confess because of God's faithfulness. As one commentator puts it, our hope is based on the unfailing promise of God. Why should we not cherish it confidently and confess it boldly? Why should we not? And, and to our end today, to see how this confession of Christ is advancing the mission, I want to tell you two ways that this confession of Christ each week results in mission. First, corporately, this confession is missional because it is missional for a confessing church to be present in a community and a town. See, it's the responsibility of the local church to bring the good news to a community, to the community surrounding it. So it is God's blessing to a city and to a people 
for there to be gospel-confessing churches in it. Our cities don't know that, but they will one day. Right now, we seem to be a nuisance sometimes. But one day, all the people of this world will see what an immense blessing it is that local churches, we're part of a community, we're in a community, and we're blessing a community by proclaiming the good news. Individually, the confession of Christ is missional because it's a blessing to a city to have people living in it, living in that city, that rise on Sunday mornings eager to gather with God's people for Lord's Day worship. See, it's a blessing for a city to have people living in it that gather with God's people each week to draw near to God, to confess Christ, and to stir up one another to love and good works. Essentially, to stir up one another to love that very city that they live in. So, so I want you to know that it is missional, missional when you forego work, hobbies, and activities on Sunday mornings because you're called to worship your Creator. Your actions are a testimony to the work of God in your life, and others are blessed whether they know it or not. So thank you for loving your cities this way. Additionally, the grounding of our confession, God's faithfulness, drives us to find loving ways to serve our community, even when it costs us stuff we don't have, even when we, we don't know what the heck we're doing, when we don't feel equipped, and even when we don't know at all what to do to love somebody. See, God is faithful in inviting us into his presence. And so he's surely faithful uh, in, in other things. Like he's certainly faithful in all other areas of our lives. See, if he's faithful in letting us into his presence, how is he not faithful in providing for us? How is he not faithful in answering our prayers? And how is he not faithful in all of the other ways that he's promised, including mission? See, the mission of God is advanced when the people of God gather to worship Him, to experience the gospel and to confess Christ each Sunday. God is faithful, and we know that. So the mission goes on. So we press on with the mission. The third way that this text shows us that the mission of God is advanced as we gather for worship is that we are to stir up our brothers and sisters to love and good works as we gather each week, as we pray each week, as we sing each week, as we preach each week. We're to stir up one another. It's verses 24 and 25. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. See, throughout our passage today, I, I hope you notice that the author has been using language of community. He's been saying words like brothers, uh, and he's been using phrases like let us. See, there's a communal nature to Lord's Day worship that shouldn't be missed. And when we gather for worship, we're, part of that is us stirring up one another to love and good works. And 
while it seems like it, because we live in a day that sometimes, uh, we, we live in a day where we get to be passive much of the time because of technology and other things, and so we have passive pursuits, but this isn't to be one, all right? Uh, worship isn't to be a passive endeavor, and it's not to be an individual endeavor. Gathered worship is about the saints, quote, provoking one another, all right? I, I say provoke because that's what the actual word used here is, um, we're supposed to provoke each other to love and good works. See, the same word used negatively actually would convey uh, that you were provoking irritation or causing contention. Don't do that. That's not what I mean when I say provoke. We're supposed to provoke each other to love and good works. All right? We're to think positively about how we can be provoking one another to love God and love our neighbors. So there should be a certain sense, in here when we gather, there should be a certain sense of, can you believe that? Can you believe this gospel? Can you believe that we get to gather together with the people of God and, and that the Lord of glory actually descends on this place? Can you believe that? That's a big deal. There should be a certain sense of, do you see what God did in my life? Have you seen that? Do you know about this? There should be some of that going on as we gather each week. Have you ever been around somebody that's so excited about something that they want you to be excited about it? You guys know what I'm talking about? All right. Mariah experienced this heavily over the last month with March Madness because when something awesome happens, whether she cares or not, I still pause it and rewind the DVR. And I'm like, did you see this dude hit this tray from 28 feet? Did you see him throw down? Did you see how high he jumped? I'm pretty sure she tried to set fire to my bracket multiple times because it would keep showing up on the table or in the living room or on the refrigerator next to Naomi's drawings. <laughs> Naomi didn't mind. Uh, we laugh about that, though, right? But, but it should be like that to some extent as we gather for worship. It's legitimate that we should say, did you hear how God saved me? Did you see how God was hero of this? Did you see how God healed this relationship, this broken relationship? Did you hear how God provides for his people? We should have some of that going on. See, corporate worship is essential to your own health and to the mission. But beyond that, it's, it's essential to the health and mission of your brothers and sisters that God has given you in this local church. See, Christian fellowship should happen clearly on Sunday mornings. And it should be causing our faith to flourish. And as a result, our mission should flourish. See, if Sunday worship is about the body and about mission, and not just about me being good, then I need to approach this time differently. See, then it's not about what I want, what I like, and whether or not this was helpful to me. It, it becomes about the body of Christ being built up in the faith, being affirmed, being corrected, being encouraged. So, so what, if, what if you prayerfully started showing up for Lord's Day worship each week, looking for ways to encourage people, to encourage your brothers and sisters in the faith and on the mission? 
What, what if we didn't only close our eyes as we sing? But what if we put, around, put our arm around a brother who's struggling, who's hurting, and sing about God's faithfulness with him? What if we asked his sister how we could pray for her and actually just stopped right there and did it? What if we did that? See, one of my favorite things about getting to serve you and about getting to lead um, us in song each week is that I get up early on Sunday mornings. I try to, be, like, I, I try to get up earlier than my kids, um, which is a, a fight sometimes, but I try to. Um, so I get up early on Sundays, and I spend time praying for the Holy Spirit to give me eyes to see ways that I can serve you, corporately, of course, but individually. So if there's an individual in this room who's hurting, I want to know about that. And so I ask the Holy Spirit to give me eyes to see that. And then I review every single song lyric, looking for specific words that can assure you and encourage you in your life and mission. And this means that if I know you're struggling or you're hurting, or if you're celebrating, I'll look right at you. I'll look you in the eye as we sing a particular song about God's faithfulness, or about God's love, or about God's goodness. And it's such joy. It can be hard work, and it can be emotionally difficult. But it's what we're called to. It's what I think this passage is calling us to. And, and that doesn't need to be limited to me or to those of us that stand behind the pulpit and preach. See, if we're prayerfully approaching Lord's Day worship as a way to bless others, our interactions will be more meaningful. Our joy will be more full. And the gospel will be more real to us, I can assure you. And I think that's one of the reasons that the author of this text writes for us not to neglect meeting together. He does that at the beginning of verse 25. See, it's easy for us to think that we can do this Christian thing alone. I don't know if you're tempted to do that, but, but it's easy to think that. But that's not what Scripture says, and it's certainly not what Hebrews 10.25 says. In that verse, the author emphasizes that we are not to neglect gathering together. And this is certainly because of the loss it would be to the body of Christ. But beyond that, it's, it's because of the, the cost, it's because of the blow that it would have towards your own faith. See, in the next few verses, he links those who do not gather together with those who no longer have a portion of Christ's sacrifice remaining for them in their sins. See, one way that you can make sure to walk away from the gospel is to quit gathering with the saints. Now, I'm not telling you that these scriptures say that if you miss a couple of Sundays, it means that you're automatically falling away. But I do want you to hear, as we're in this text, that we need to take seriously the command to not neglect meeting together. See, as much as the folks around you right now need you provoking them to love and good works, as much as they need that, and they do, whether they tell you or not, they need that. As much as they need it, you also need them provoking you to love and good works. And because God has so blessed his people with Lord's Day worship, with what it means for us to get to gather together, because he's so blessed that there is a cost when any of us fails to gather, fails to participate with the saints. 
And that cost stretches far beyond yourself to others. See, the loss can be dramatic when we don't gather to worship together. Because the gain of drawing near to God is so big. See, when the saints provoke each other to love and good works, the mission is advanced and the fruitfulness of our gathering far outlasts the time we spend together. See, so, so this hour and a half becomes a week, right? The effect's immense. See, hopefully, as we've talked through this, you've seen the missional implications of this time, of, of what it looks like for us to be gathering together to worship each Sunday. See, this matters to you. That's what I want you to do. This matters to you, and it matters to those sitting next to you right now, and it matters to those that you live life with and around. It matters that we draw near to God. It matters that we confess God's faithfulness. And it matters that we provoke one another to love and good works. It matters. Know that it matters. So it matters to those of us gathered here today. And it matters to those around us that have not yet come to believe. Your being here to worship Jesus right now, whether it feels like it or not, is mission. And as we close, I want to point out that gathering for worship is also missional and that it is the inbreaking of heavenly realities into our day. See, we've talked about living between promise and peril and the difficulty of it. But I need us to see that gathering for worship with God's people is a glimpse of heaven. It may not seem like it, but when we gather together as the body of Christ, drawing near to God in full assurance that, that we are blood-bought sons of God, confessing His faithfulness and keeping His promise and stirring up one another to love and good works, we are doing nothing short of experiencing heaven on earth. I hope that your heart beats fast at that. Because for all eternity, you'll be gathering with the saints to draw near to the triune God. You'll be taking in and savoring His inexhaustible glory and beauty. And you will be amazed time and time again that He would grant you, that He would grant us in eternity, glorying in Jesus. There will be joy there for you. And it will be joy you can't imagine. And gathering together to worship. Gathering under the word, at the table, in song, in prayer. Is a glimpse into that eternal joy. So take hold of that. Take hold of it. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you for your gospel. That it is true. I thank you that we get to stand before you. That we get to stand before the Father all wrapped up in your righteousness. And we get to delight in the triune God, the maker of the universe. I thank you for that. I pray that you would make our hearts eager to do that. 
There's a million things going on that are begging for our time and our attention. And it would be so easy for Satan to lie to us about the importance of gathering together. But I pray that you would squash that. And I pray that you would make us people who love, love, love our brothers and sisters and gathering as a family to worship you in Jesus. I pray that by your spirit you would make us people who love one another deeply and stir up one another to love and good works. Would you make that happen? It's going to take some courage. It's going to take some intentionality. It's going to take some time. But I pray that you would make us a people about that. And I pray that this humble little gathering that we have today, this humble number of people, um, regardless of what it looks like on the outside, I pray that it would send ripples through eternity as this gathering advances the mission of God in Malden and in Melrose and beyond. I pray by your grace and hoping in you and hoping in your faithfulness that you would see to it that all of this happens. In the strong name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.